Jesus Contreras began his training as an engraver at a small workshop in Mexico City. In 1881, he was awarded a scholarship to go and study art in Paris. And after he did his studying, he came back to Mexico in 1890 and became the director of Mexican Art Foundation, which he was charged with executing large statues throughout Mexico City that told the story of the history of what was happening, what had had happened. So, he is known famously for his sculpture, the Margrave Taunt, which means in spite of everything. This Sculpture evokes the state of mind of a changed woman face down to the ground, shackles behind her, strains her face, expressing the universal feeling of discontent that freedom just might not ever happen. After the Mexican Revolution, it was a huge political movement for the state to restore how women should be in society. Docile homemakers submit to authority, don't get out of line. And it was this sculpture that helped move women along in believing to resist the oppression to become something they did not want to become. The sculpture that assisted the attitude of women in Mexico. As our own Isla Stewart summarizes in her thesis, the impact of this sculpture was politically and socially different than any artwork before. It was public, it was confrontational, and it went against the state. And one of the most important aspects of the sculpture is that she is suffering. That you see this on her face, you see this in her body as she lays face down to the ground with chains behind her. But she becomes a hero because she's not diminished to her sexuality, but she manages to show virtuous characteristics in spite of everything, because she will get free. It's a story of resistance and opposition. It's a story of the in spite of and the managing to find a way of freedom even in the most obscure way. And today's passage takes that to heart. Just from the first line of the text, we, the readers, realize everything is about to change. For there was a king who knew not Joseph. The only time you probably ever hear me recite the KJV version of the Bible. (laughs) We've just 
read and heard multiple chapters of a different book sharing the life of Joseph. We had to go through deceit and lies and being trafficked by his own brothers. And somehow, some way, he rises to the top that he finds a way to stop a famine from happening and his legacy, his story, it goes on and on to generation to generation. But finally there came a king, there came a pharaoh who knew not Joseph's story and his lineage and what he had done for Egypt. And if we've learned anything of tyrants through history, In order to be successful, you must have someone, something, some group to become the enemy of the state. You must find some way to create fear in the system and give reason to create an enemy in the first place. Everywhere Pharaoh looks, Hebrews. Everywhere he looks, Hebrews are all around, and he says that they are getting powerful and they're becoming more of us. And if a war happens, nobody's been talking about one, but if a war happens, they will rise up and destroy us. We saw this same plan from Hitler. We've seen it from Idi Amam. We even see it in America when we talk about Christian nationalism and white supremacy. Pharaoh looks around and he sees so many Hebrews and blacks and Mexicans and Asians and migrants and, I'm I'm sorry, let me get back to the historical critical method. (laughs) From the beginning, we see that chaos is happening. And I need to just let you know for today, I I get that Moses is part of the story, and we like to jump straight to Moses, that he was drawn out of the water, and he helped drew out all these things and the other characters in the story. We want to lift high the patriarch, and he will get his time in the next couple of weeks. But today, the liberators in the text are five women. And it's not lost on us that that Pharaoh sets a rule twice to get rid of the Hebrew boys because the women are not a threat to him. He tells Shifra and Pua, when you act as midwives, when you sit on the birth stool, as soon as you see a male, kill them. And much like the Malgré taunt, bound up by societal norms and expectations, these women with smirks on their face know they will find a way toward freedom, toward resistance. See, I like to imagine that the women are interrupted from their meeting with Pharaoh because there's a woman on the south side who's bearing a child and in labor. She's feeling the pains, and she's counting 
How long between each contraction, trying to hold off before the midwives have come, but the pains are getting greater and greater and greater. It's not her first child, so she knows what to do until they get here, but, but she's frightened. She's, she's in pain. And somehow Shifra and, and Pua, they, they get there and she begins to calm. She begins to calm down. They, they get in position and they just hope that the babe is not breached. They tell her to push just a little bit and they, and they see ahead and they begin to get excited. Pua wipes the sweat from the Levite woman's head and tell her just one more push. One more good push, uh, make it all happen. One more good push, and she pushes with all within her, and out comes a child, and Shifra freezes. He's beautiful, he, he's healthy, but it's, it's a boy. She takes him to the water bowl and begins to rinse him off as Pua stays with the Levite woman to help her deliver the placenta. But she continues to see the worry on their faces and she keeps saying, what's wrong, what's wrong? And at the same time, they both say, Kitov, life, life is good here. And I imagine it's, it's one of these scenes that causes Pua and Shifra to believe and understand we can't follow out Pharaoh's plan, that our fear, our love, our devotion to God is more. We cannot. As one scholar puts it, Pharaoh commands the two who wake up every morning prepared to craft a birth announcement to write obituaries a directive to disturb their whole purpose. That each morning they were waking up to chaos. But the meaning of their names, beauty and fragrant blossom, foreshadows what shall come. Just notice something for a moment in the text. The first chapter of Exodus uses multiple words from the first chapter of Genesis. Specifically important, tuhovu and behoyu and ketov. Chaos and it was good or life is good. With just two phrases, the beginning of Exodus incorporates the story of the creation of the world into the creation of the Israelite people. No longer a clan, no longer just a small family sitting on a farm somewhere, but an entire tribe, an entire people that unfolds throughout the entirety of Exodus. However, in this creation narrative of the Israelite people, it's clear that in order for Ketov, for, for life to be good or it to be good, resistance must be part 
of the life and the culture. South African theologian Alan Bozek calls this the theology of prophetic resistance. That we as church folk get so caught up in the meta-narratives of the, well, God delivered God's people or there was a ram in a bush. And so we think all things are right and good, but we forget the thousands of micro-narratives that had to happen for the meta-narrative to come true. For, for such in this passage, we forget that it took these five women to work, to orchestrate, to resist opposition, to resist being oppressed, to go forward, to do what was right and truth in order for Moses to go out and free the people. And the calling of this is, is that we must be participants in the micro-narrative implementing and helping to further the meta-narrative of the kingdom of God being built right here. Amid the chaos of our time, amid the pharaohs that instate ways and rules of corruption, this is where we follow along our matriarchs of Shifra and Pua. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying go out and burn down corporations and go beat up people. I'm not talking about violence before you start making lists out. But I wonder what it looks like to be pure and to give agency to those who are silent or who have been silenced. I wonder what it looks like or where our world could be if we took on Shifra's mentality to go against those in our country who truly believe that certain set of children do not deserve adequate education. I wonder what we would be like if we took on being Miriam and ran out to find help and to love the orphans in our society. I wonder what it would be like to take on the courage of the Levite woman to build an ark of safety for our children who are in dangerous waters of bullying, gun violence, and in the midst of miseducation in our system. I wonder what it would be like to take on a theology of truth rather than opinion, hope rather than fear, togetherness rather than singling out. I wonder what it looks like if we just just in spite of it all, work toward furthering the will of God so that when the pharaohs of our society come up to us and say, why have you done this? May we say that in spite of everything, there is a way for God's grace, God's justice, God's love, God's mercy to overthrow and prevail over oppression and hate. I wonder what it looks like to be a Shifra and a Pua right now for the sake of our world. Amen.